0: Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co host Terry Robinson. And today on Tomes of Magic, I was planning on talking about unmitigated evil. But Terry said to me, Adam, why don't you just leave your personal life out of this? And we talk about Book of the Fallen. So Book of the Fallen it is. And before we get to it, though, I was going to open it up for announcements. And I actually do have an announcement myself this week. Uh, Terry and I got together a few days ago to try and record this episode. And uh, audio equipment just was not working. We narrowed it down to uh, my microphone. It was just not doing the job and so we were able to order a new one in a couple of days it came in and we can get back to recording and i just want to say a big thank you to the executive producers that make those kind of decisions very easy for us to make so that the show can in fact go on uh so terry did you have any announcements this week My only disappointment is
1: that we figured that out midway through our recording of Gods and Monsters, so the audio on that one is a little bit rough, but this one came out after it, so you already know that. My only other note is I put together my schedule for Gen Con. If you're a listener and you plan on going to Gen Con in Indianapolis, Indiana, feel free to reach out to me through the Discord if you'd like to try and run into each other. It was a weird cross-section of things. The first nine games I requested to join were all full, but the next six... We're okay, so uh, if all works well, I'll be trying Wraith for the first time among an, uh, a smattering of other things. That's all for me.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. In about a week or two here, I'm heading to uh, North Texas RPG Con up uh, near Dallas, so there should be a lot of, uh, lot of RPG fans there. I uh, met some World of Darkness fans there last time I attended, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So, all right. Uh, today on Tomes of Magic, we are talking about Book of the Fallen from Mage 20. It came out in 2019. It had two authors, uh, Saturos Braccato and Jacqueline Brick. It uh, clocks in at 223 pages, all about the very evil Nifondi, and it uh, gives you a content warning at the beginning of the book that this, this is, in fact, going to deal with evil as is appropriate for the subject. So, Terry, uh, can you start us off with a walkthrough? Before we get to the introduction, we get the author's preface of
1: Evil is Not a Toy. And the author more or less opens with a list of bad things that they have personally experienced. This book indicates then that it will not be giving us a player's guide to the Nefandi, nor will it present a cartoonish kind of evil. I take this as the author saying that they have made personal contact with what they consider to be evil, so for them this is not an entirely hypothetical thing. To some extent, I guess this is kind of to prepare the reader for what they see after, and then it goes on to the introduction, Eaters of the Week. The introduction is entitled Eaters of the Week, and the first thing I noticed before we even got to the text is the fact that for the introduction, the chapter header, before and after this chapter, was done by Samuel Araya, and I think this is their first World of Darkness work. Samuel Araya is a noted painter and illustrator and has done a number of things for uh, Pelgrane Press, and I was just glad to see them in the list of artist credits. Um, This introduction indicates that the Nifondi are winning. This makes me ask, then, what does being the current winner of the Ascension War mean, or what does it mean being in pole position? I'd say they're gaining power compared to the rest of the gaming world, but this by no means suggests that they're the dominant faction, nor have they won over most mortals. To me, this is more of a statement that their power, comparatively, has increased. I would say that the technocracy wants to control sleepers, the tradition wants to unleash them, and the nafandi wants to distract them, and they are very distracted. It makes a comment about the Nafandi being gone in revised, and this is a, a strong reversal of that. The Nefandi here are set up to represent the draw of mankind towards annihilation. We then get a sidebar commenting on what clinical sociopathy is, where someone lacks an internal sense of empathy, but may or may not act on it, versus what the author then calls sociopathy chic, who are people who choose to talk at, toss out emotion and empathy for profit. I have difficulty with these definitions. There's kind of this arbitrary line that is repeatedly drawn throughout the book as to um, what these things mean, which of them are clinical and which are not, and it begins in this introduction. We learn that the Nifondi are going towards a kind of dark transcendence where they seek godhood, that they see the world in terms of being either predator or prey, and that they excel at the cost of others and try to crush hope. This book says hope is absurd. We then get a section on what abuse is as a systematic pattern of dependence, isolation, exploitation, threats, damage, and fear, and that no one is exempt from it. We then get basic information on recognizing abuse when it is happening and how to hopefully escape from it. We get a few other definitions and then we get a pretty long nephondic lexicon that uh, spans several pages. A bunch of these are never really brought up again. Most of the definitions provided here are consistent with what we have received before. This continues with the uh, definition of an aswad as being kind of an Archmage or Oracle, the Jolidians are again quite powerful, as opposed to merely teachers and guides. And then the chapter ends. Adam, what did you think about the introduction?
0: Yeah, this was uh, one of the larger introductions, so there was a lot more content in there than I've been accustomed to from uh, a number of past Mage books. There's a definition of abuse, its technique, techniques, and how to fight it. I don't think this is really so helpful to me when I'm running role-playing games. Breaking the Power of Abuse. Uh, there's a section on how how you do that. But this section doesn't mention what to do if the abuser has Mind 3 or Entropy 2 or anything like that. So it was a little odd for me. But uh, other than that, I'm ready for Chapter 1. Chapter 1 is entitled
1: The Awful Truth. In the same way Chapter 5 of M20 Core adopts an in-world voice, so does this chapter. The opening section is entitled enough and there's an aside about entitled drinking from a broken glass. The author is kind of presenting their view of things indicating that the Nafandi are trying to get people to drink from a broken glass that is filled with sewage and we should uh, ch- choose not to. I would have liked this as a continuing section where there were periodic asides to kind of temper that in-world voice which to me gets remarkably excessive at certain points. This section again goes through kind of all the bad things in the world of darkness and the author goes through a narrow section of the city and lists all of the evils that are there this is arguably the bleakest description i have seen of the world of darkness and it is simply a list to fill your game with despair and The Nafandi believe they kind of have the straight dope on reality and they are right to wish themselves to free themselves of its carnage. It indicates that the cult of the star squid doesn't exist and is a ruse, which it then later does talk about some of the cosmic entities that they truck with. And this is one of many cases within the book where it has that kind of internal consistency. Um, it presents a definition of demon as a class of spirits that have been collectively denounced by humanity, but that the nafandi are willing to truck with. We also get a few other key terms that are that are mentioned to us we get an idea of the uh lex predatorius which is the the law of the predator the right of the the predator to consume the prey we get the idea of the leviathan just the ability to consume all and define and control reality we get a brief mention on what the calls are and then the chapter kind of ends with another section where the lead character says a whole bunch of mage terms in scare quotes and then calls you an idiot for believing them. I did not enjoy that tone. I don't think it accomplishes anything and it makes it difficult to run. The voice of the character is not compelling, which if that is the intent as a way of encouraging people not to take on the nefandic way, you have either presented the Nefondi as being facile, as in something that you would not legitimately be able to show in-game, why people are attracted to it, or you've kind of set up a scenario where it is trivial to triumph over. And this book says that the evil presented will not be cartoonish. And to me, that is one of the hallmarks of cartoonish evil. We then move on to chapter two. So what did you think about chapter one, Adam?
0: Well, this kind of uh, in-character rant about how the universe is completely awful it can be interesting but if stretched out too long like it is here it gets old fast also i noticed something on page 36 which really stood out to me it states that the calls these uh, sort of cosmic organic devices that Nefandi go through as part of their full initiation into a, a Nafandi group it states that those who aren't truly committed to becoming uh Nifondi will die and, and they will not come out of that call alive again. This, for me, is very important because there are several points in the uh, in different uh, World of Darkness games where they put something in the game specifically to justify you know how this is going to work. For example, a vampire masquerade, it's like a, how, vampires have been hiding really well for hundreds of years, how do they do that? Well, when they bite someone and they take blood, then after they're done, they lick the wound and the puncture marks fade away, they're just gone. So it's like this is how uh, this is a, a specific trick uh, vampires can use to keep their presence secret. And so it's like you read that. It's like well, if they can do that, then yeah, maybe I can go along with this. Maybe they can stay secret. And so with the Nifandi we have a group of villains in the world of Mage who are uh, very evil. Uh, every faction of Mages uh, other than the Nifandi themselves want to uh, kill them on sight. Uh, their uh, aura is you know warped with evil influences. So how come they haven't been infiltrated? How come they haven't been shut down? How can they keep uh, being so evil and effective at the same time? And so this is one of those things. If a mage wants to infiltrate the Nifondi and learn all their secrets and report afterwards to be to uh, prove that they're the real deal, they have to go through the call. Well, that kills them. So now it is very, very hard to infiltrate the Nefondi and leak out their secrets. And so this, this is covered. And I think it was covered in past editions of Mage also. So I like the fact that this book is aware of the fact that Nifondi need to keep out infiltrators, hide their auras, um, you know, do all these things to remain a viable villain group in the game. Chapter 2 is entitled Leviathan.
1: We get a another attempt to define the difference between cartoon and real evil, indicating that the line between the two is its obviousness and its trappings. I feel this is messy because it depends on the reader having a certain notion of what is obvious and what appropriate trappings are for instance a hermetic bedecked in robes of their station to invoke a ritual is fine but apparently the same mage as barabbas is cartoony almost any barabbi which is to say a mage that already had awoken under another tradition uh, lowercase t and then gone through the calls but kind of kept their way of magic but inflected it in some darker evil way is going to be seen as cartoony, we then get some discussion of the types of evil. This is kind of useful. We get natural evil, which is the suffering necessary for life to continue or the harm that comes from natural processes like disasters. Some primitive Nefandi consider themselves to be natural forces a alien evil being whose moral compass is so different they do evil without intending such as the Ramas Ka. could this be mages if you view the ability to manipulate reality as putting you beyond the moral opprobrium or being another type of entity it could fit within this metaphysical evil a type of malignant force they also mention theological evil which cut Posits a cosmic force of bad. It then skips over the problem of evil, which I think would be absolutely fascinating, which is the idea that if you have a power in reality that is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, how do you have quite simply bad things? And we've never had a World of Darkness discussion of theodicy in Mage. You have cultural evil, which is when another culture has traits requiring harm to be delivered unto them, that it is just to cause harm to a person or group of people because. Because of a certain set of traits that they have this is fine except for the definitions as with many of the definitions of this book are not sufficiently circumspect because in here this would indicate that for instance a culture with the death penalty even for heinous crimes is committing a kind of has deemed the other person to be culturally evil we then get circumstantial evil which says that some things are okay if the why of why they're done is acceptable, and then we get personal evil, which is harm for its own sake. There is an aside that attempts to define psychopathy, sociopathy, narcissism, and sociopathy chic, which is a term to the best of my knowledge which is literally only used in this book. This I find somewhat bothersome in that it does something where it presumes empathy is important. The book does not do a good job, for instance, of differentiating between empathy and and compassion, where empathy is the ability to understand and feel what others feel, compassion is the desire to alleviate the suffering of others, which to me is vastly more important. Empathy can be crippling, whereas compassion is empowering. And it also fails to understand that in a lot of cases, highly abusive people are highly empathetic. They know exactly what the other person is going through, and they may like it. So just the the discourse on definitions and such, I don't think was developed enough to really set a foundation for what the rest of the book describes. The next section is entitled Descent, which is the process of removing limitations on action that the Nefani believe is holding them back. To their view, the world has held them back, and through pursuing pleasure or destruction, they will gain power. At the end of the path, the Nephondis may merge with the void and be absorbed into the pre-light non-existence or pursue a far greater state. Other Nifondi pursue global dissension and wish to offer a feast to their dark masters and they hold humanity in contempt. Those who dwell beyond the stars may be beings that have transcended reality and now live in their own realms far away. Others may make sacrifices to join them and this is a case where I am bothered by the fact that they say hey those who dwell beyond the stars when earlier they're like this cult of the star squid is gone. Uh, okay. The next part talks about what the nephondic ideals are and this Breaks down kind of in the middle, but these were the ones that I was able to grab. These are the steps that generally seem to mark the descent into being a Nephondas, that there is a moment of awareness, some sort of knowledge that very bad things happen in the world, as well as some familiarity with the occult, some sort of conflict, this sort of phase of fighting and conflict with authority. Some sort of mentor may emerge. They may have an encounter with a Klippoth. The abandoned shells of previous attempts at creation, except for they still have inhabitants. Exposure, the discovery of the Lex Predatorianus. You are a predator, of the world is your prey, eat or be eaten. There are Documents called abyssal litanies, the set of behavior, stories, and culture passed on from Nefondus to Nefondus, usually within a labyrinth. A labyrinth being a place where nafondi gather, mostly outside of civilized areas where they carry on their deeds, described as messy, and often they will amass a rival of some sort. Resolution. Once the character realizes that they must achieve power or perish. Perish in this case may be to simply die or to slide off world. Other kind of operate in a set of places at the edge of reality. They often enter damnation when they die, where they are tormented eternally. This makes them quite conscious. As mentioned, Nifondi Gilgul, which is interesting as it's uh, quite hard and I don't know how a bunch of Nifondi would get together to coordinate that. But it, it kind of suggests that ultimately, in some way, the Nafandi are a weird kind of right and wrong in that if they do die and they do go to some sort of eternal torment, that does kind of implicitly, to me, recognize that the universe thinks they are wrong rather than the universe being uh, willing to embrace their quest for the void. We get the idea of the Harath Karo, which is a kind of demonic language, which the nafandi use to commune with dark beings, as well as a way of one-upping each other. We then get a destruction. A discussion of the kind of types of nefandi, and they often awaken during a period of victimhood we get the idea of the barabi which are nafandi that convert from other uh, magical groups because the other group does not meet a need of some sort we get the callborn who awaken when they step through the calls we get the widderslancha who could be reborn avatars, they could be alien creatures, or they could be something else. They are born in some way tainted or bad. They can turn back, and this very much relies on the fact that the avatar and the person are not necessarily the same thing, but to go against what your the call of your avatar is for your entire life is somewhat is somewhat difficult. We then get the Nephondic Essences. We have Chaotic, which ties to Primordial, which seeks to return to Primordial Chaos. They are draw, drawn towards storms. We have the Destructive essence, which is the Nephontic version of dynamic, they tend to be volatile, frozen uh, ties to static, they are cold and emotionless, and tormented ties to questing, where they are unsettling or guilty. We then get a section on the laws of predation, and this is kind of a generic set of tactics that they use we get the idea that kind of cornerstone to this is indulgence of a target further deception isolation escalation corruption and then finally uh, a moment of a force it then goes through some tactics that people actually use it goes over alpha gaslighting flying monkey ying i guess that's a verb now love bombing, undercutting and repentance kind of as a cycle And then it comes to the end. What did you think about chapter two, Adam?
0: I appreciate the fact that Mage 20 clearly states uh, the evil of the Nefandi as a conscious moral choice. Uh, earlier editions of Mage, especially the first two, like early editions of, of Werewolf the Apocalypse, state evil is, is like this kind of substance that someone can pour on you, and then you're just irredeemably evil from then on. And that, that just never sat well with me. But this book actually uh, says, no, the, there's there's moral agency here. The choice was made. It, it's not something that somebody poured on you. Page 46 talks about the death of Imp. Uh, Nefandi are defined as those who do evil because they want to, they choose to. This, I think, is um, um, not necessarily brand new for Mage 20, but it is a new focus. Uh, previous editions of Mage uh, focused more on uh, them serving evil beings um, from the deep umbra or seeking the end of the universe. The uh, Nifandi only language. Um, It has that uh, new name that that Terry gave you that I have a hard time remembering. Previously, um, it was called Dragon's Tongue, and that gets a new treatment in this book. Uh, In early editions of Mage, Dragon's Tongue was something that uh, only people who went through the call could learn and speak and understand. There was something kind of magical about it. Other mages just could not learn Dragon's Tongue, period. And in my own games, I disregarded that. I said, no, it, it, it's something different. Here, this new treatment of Dragon's Tongue states that it is not magically only for people who go through the calls, but it is a custom mixture of very old languages. And not only that, but there's a sort of uh, interpretation code that you have to learn in person from being with other Nafandi. And the reason for that is when non-nafandi get a hold of documents and books from the Nefandi that are written in dragon's tongue, it doesn't matter if they decipher the mixture of ancient languages. there's still some knowledge that helps that would help a person interpret it and they don't have that. So basically the Nafandi can keep their written documents secret uh, because of this. And so I actually like this this new treatment of, of dragon tongue. I think that makes more sense to me. it's something I could more easily run with as a storyteller. I really like the new take on uh, widerslancha. In in first edition of Mage, they were were mages who were just born evil. Uh, they were born that way. They're just going to be evil, and that's just how it is. And the faster um, other mages take them out, the better. Uh, here it says that widerslancha are mages that are born with a. I guess tainted or or um, mixed up uh, avatar, and it it strongly pulls them towards evil. But they still have moral agency; they can still choose to resist. It's harder for them than it is for most people, but that choice is still there. And um, so I I found that more more interesting um, to use them as NPCs if I'm a storyteller. There are six pages defining different uh, varieties of evil and psychology terms. I thought that was. It was just unnecessary. I, I don't think this helps me as a storyteller. In this chapter, we are presented with these sort of, um, I guess you could say, ethical or, or sort of spiritual views of the Nifondi, how they understand themselves and, and what it is they're doing. As we'll see in chapter 3, there are new Uh, internal factions of Nafandi who are much more uh, modern and uh, less uh, spiritual and religious. And so I think in chapter two, it would have been really nice if we were given a uh, non-moral, non-spiritual view of needing to end the universe, because that would fit much better with these newer, more modern uh, Nafandi groups. But that wraps up my thoughts on chapter two. Chapter three is
1: entitled, But Darkness Visible. And this is a big old list of who's in Nifondi. And when I think of lists of who's in who, I think of factions.
0: And when I think of factions, I think of Adam. Well, let's see the Nifandi internal factions for Book of the Fallen. Uh, in Mage 20, there are eight factions within the Nifandi. Uh, three are very old, while five are recent additions. The outsiders, uh, those who serve powerful beings in the deep Umbra, are not in Mage 20. Uh, first, the old factions, these three groups are known to most mages, but what mages don't know is the influence of these three groups over Nifondi society is less than it used to be. Uh, first off, Infernalists are a collection of sects that treat with infernal beings. Now the group has more unawakened members than true Nefandi and is watching their influence decline. These Nifondi are methodical and organized. They take their traditions seriously. Longtime signature character Jody Blake is an Infernalist. Next up, Kalasha are a group that dispense with conventional notions of sanity. Mages outside the Nefandi wonder if they are a fusion of Nifandi and marauders. The majority of members operate on an individual basis and live in secluded places or on the fringe of society where no questions are asked. They have a frightening ability to gather unawakened followers and become cult leaders to them. Malfians serve the worm, an aspect of the cosmic void. They believe the universe is inherently sick, and the only remedy is to aid the worm in its attempt to erase existence. The worm's urges are exemplars of various aspects of the void and are like gods to the Malfians. This group emphasizes global extinction, so their members spend less time on personal dissension. They work in organized cells that include multiple Nifondi, unawakened servants, and often the Fomori and corrupted werewolves of Werewolf the Apocalypse are involved as well. There are five new factions. Few mages outside the Nifandi have heard these names. Bafis, also called goat kids, are a growing group who have attached themselves to the new festival culture. They travel to counter-culture events where they present themselves as interesting people to know and build relationships with members of many different subcultures. They embrace the god form of Baphomet and engage in the darker corners of the occult while avoiding satanic trappings. Those chronicles featuring Nephondic infiltration of the nine traditions or the disparates will have the Bafis at the front of that effort. This may be the largest faction of Nefandi in terms of Awakened members. Exes, also called Obliviates, are mostly Technomages who are dedicated to causing large-scale disasters. They seldom cooperate with each other and have no hierarchy. In fact, they undercut each other's efforts, which has led to the failure of many of their schemes. Heralds of Basilisk are internet-savvy Nefandi who are working to increase the power of an online god form called the Basilisk. They have influence in high-tech industries and cutting edge online spaces where they encourage people to fear or just think about Rocco's Basilisk. They are investing effort into restricting and taking over sectors on the digital web. The group has a leader and hierarchy, so it is more organized than most Nefandi groups. Iron Hands, also called the Tech Nefandi, use machines to create misery and work towards the world's end. Focusing more on mechanical than computer or network technology, the Iron Hands tell their new recruits they've been around since the Renaissance. They were behind the creation of many fearsome weapons of war and helped bring about both world wars. They continue to encourage armed conflicts across the globe today. At times, they work together with the XCs and often with the Mammonites, another faction we'll cover in a minute. Those chronicles featuring Nafandi infiltration of the technocracy will have the Iron Hands at the front of that effort. Mammonites are the syndicate of the Nafandi. There isn't much more to say about them, really. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this group started with people from rich European families who turned their boredom into a penchant for torturing peasants in the 1700s. If you want to split hairs, I can tell you syndicate members are usually more hardworking than Mammonites, but that's really it. <laughs> Uh, okay, my thoughts on these factions. The new Nifondi groups, aside from the baffys, support Mage 20's idea that more modern, less supernatural Nifondi can make equally frightening villains. Unfortunately, the justification for why the Exes haven't destroyed the world yet makes them look comically inept. A storyteller using them will have to work to avoid making them look silly. I don't believe most Nifondi would avoid the internet, especially after past mage supplements, so I'm having trouble seeing how the Heralds of Basilisk can keep their activities secret from other Nefandi groups. As a storyteller, the Mammonites aren't all that interesting. They seem like just another expression of the author's anger over news headlines. The dark luminaries at the end of each section gives storytellers potential story ideas, so I'm glad they were included. Saying the five new factions are unknown even to most Nifandi is stretching things a little too far for me. Nifandi passed through calls, and there are only so many of those. A faction of mages can't get good access to calls without alerting other Nifandi. That that was something I think is worth thinking about. But uh, Terry, what were your thoughts on the uh, internal factions of Chapter 3? it's kind of interesting as you
1: mentioned the the Xs do kind of be wind up being these comic book characters. It does allow you to create a game where most of what the technocracy is doing is stopping these extinction attempts or something similar and it is one of those things where oh man with a little bit of magic you really could hork things up for a lot of humanity with a great degree of success which kind of makes it a world of darkness where things aren't necessarily worse but there are a lot of super powerful bad people that need to be opposed by a lot of super powerful good people um, or at least people that want to stop them and kind of when I read through the uh, new groups that were introduced it's like oh the Iron Hands, that's like Iteration X, but evil. Oh, the Mammonites, that's like the Syndicate. But evil, oh, the X's, that's like the Progenitors. But evil, oh, the Goat Kids, it's like the NWO. But evil. <laughs> Um, like <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> yeah, I, I can actually see that now. We, we didn't get an evil void engineer, uh, so unless that's the the heralds or something like that, mage periodically produces these sentences that accidentally change the entire game. Like the one earlier that I said that hope is absurd. No, it's not. It's entirely reasonable. But the one on the goat kids where it says they're by far the largest faction, and then it mentions that most of them are under thirty. That means your average Nefondus globally is a Burning Man going goat kid. And I don't know about you, that really changes what the Nafandi are, on average, especially if they are the largest faction, and apparently these factions are unknown, so the, now the nafandi are secretly being run by goat kids, who are mostly white people seemingly under the age of 30. And this, to me, is almost a plot hook, in that you could have your character, like Jodie Blake, talk to your characters and being like, yeah, the Nefandi of secretly been overrun by goat kids and we need to stop them because they're stupid. If you want to have your, your parody game or something like that, I I'd run that. I, I think a bunch of the ideas are kind of interesting. The Heralds of Basilisk. It's a, it is a weird purposeful misinterpretation of the thought experiment of Roko's Basilisk. I do like the idea that they are just trying to will a demon God into existence. We then later get the stats for the demon God. Put it this way, of all the nephondic overlords to put me up against, I'll go up against the basilisk. Just give me a shotgun and maybe the 10th and 11th spheres of shotgun and cocaine, and I think we could we could take care of this. Uh, Mates of Podcast does not encourage illicit drug use. This is strictly for the purposes of, of game system explanation. And I think I would be fine. I do kind of miss the uh, decadenti, which I think are what the Mammonites are now. Just kind of a group of very high-class people who have sold themselves over to dark powers for either money or or power, or influence, or just because it seems to be fun. I, I did like the sample characters they gave. It is reasonable that you could drop one into a game. I wish M20 were in a position to continue using those characters. It is also the case, though, that now we have more named Nefandi in M20 than we do any other faction of almost literally anything. But that is going to be the, the side effect of uh, of this The art in this section was fine. It was all Michael Gato stuff, that semi-photographic, slightly modified style. And that brings me to the end of uh, chapter three. Chapter four is entitled Dark Tree of Knowledge, and this is a chapter explaining Worldview, um, and we're going to start out with a, a few kind of basic terms. One is the night side, which is the metaphorical path of descent described. The clipoth are the paths of savage, the paths that lead us from savagery to godhood by navigating the abandoned shells of previous realities or these umbral realms um, that may just be a reflection of the dark side of creation. We get a couple of different definitions of what it could be. The chapter leans heavily on Jewish mysticism, and then we get a thing that says, is this stuff real? And it's like, sort of. Uh, The fact that the large evil faction in the game takes Jewish mysticism straightforward is something I am wildly uncomfortable with. Of all the times to just make something up, this is it when NATO runs war games, the bad guys in it speak Esperanto. That way no one can be accused of being the bad guys. And NATO does that. Just make something up. So with that warning out of the way, we get the path through the night side. And this is a journey through Jungian psychology. So uh, put your young pants on the night side is something that is not supposed to be cognitively understood it is commonly practiced among some not among others they mention left-handed practices which go against societal norms whether it be drug use or using sexual or ecstatic states or something like that and they mention that hey this is something that the hermetics and the cultists of ecstasy and the dream speakers and the verbena are certainly comfortable doing um, and then it says this is kind of where the nifondi start they first begin by exploring the Jungian shadow where you you choose to deny light a society as a whole or humanity as a whole will also have a shadow containing all the plot possible malignant elements as well as containing the possibility of divinity um further into the darkness we have the wilderness which is a liminal zone where darkness tumbles into chaos some groups like the verbane and the dream speakers willing to be here and the virtual Adepts are willing to create a virtual version of this this is where the Nefandi try and make their home and this is where labyrinths are built this is interesting as a section because it talks about these places both metaphorically but also indicates that they tie to literal places that you can find this chaos and that is where labyrinths are built beyond the wilderness is the underworld this is a place where all things break down and return to their base energies this is the moment you step into the calls the underworld is a place of pain and escaping it requires help or seemingly insurmountable effort next we have the depth which is the place of the absence of light feeling it form these are usually umbral realms but they can also be represented as deep sea or the space prior editions this is where suggest this is where the Nefandi fled or were forced to uh in times of weakness but more accurately many masters simply choose to make this place their home beyond the depths we have the void the furthest of the night side, anti-life, or extinction. This is a place where once you go there, you never go back. Here you are a god. There is nothing beyond. The next section is called the Clip Oath, Plumbing the Night Side. The night side is composed of a set of shells notionally containing the thing... God did not want humanity to know. This may be previous attempts at creation or things God itself does not understand. The idea is once you climb this inverse tree of knowledge that you come out the other side in some sort of universe and transcend the flawed cosmos through self-divinity. There's an aside indicating that Nefandi can sometimes choose to enter a seeking or that they can be drawn into one and I don't know that we have an example where failing in your awakened life can cause a seeking but that idea is presented here. We get a mapping between spheres and different shells as well as what each shell represents. We also get the idea shells are something that you pass through in a metaphorical sense while doing seekings. I'm not going to go through the specifics again, be the fact that it draws from real world terminology so directly and is actively perverse as to their interpretation. Just know that they are the realms themselves are kind of interestingly described. I would feel perfectly comfortable picking them up and putting them somewhere else after doing a little bit of reskinning. Most of them are ruled over by an entity and have some sort of theme that they reflect, whether it be greed or perverse life or the void and absence of love. I, I think these are actually quite well described, and the denizens put in them. Are, are somewhat interesting. In many cases, they do draw directly on real world traditions. We get a little bit more information then on what the calls are and where they are. They note that the avatar passing through a call is not so much inverted, so much as stabilized, rearranged, and infused with energies of the void. It then goes on to say that it merges with the abyss itself. We also get the idea that a large labyrinth may have several and that they are kind of semi-organic we also get the idea that if an unwilling person is shoved in their soul is ruined and scattered about the cosmos which is the first time i think we've gotten information about a soul being scattered they are outside of time and space calls cannot be formed naturally or forced into existence by by mages they already exist out there which kind of suggests that calls are natural phenomena and i don't know how i feel about that, that in the same way that shallowings just kind of exist, that calls just kind of exist and Nephondic laboratories, uh, Nephondic labyrinths are are built around them. They're also indicated as being things that will periodically close or open or wither for seemingly no reason, while others have been in continuous operation for several centuries. In previous editions, these were kind of indicated as being the semi-organic portal voids that go between our reality and the reality of the Dark Masters, of the Nefandi, and here they're a little bit, they're a little bit weirder. We also find out that the Clipoth are both inner realms, a place of contemplation and reflection on the nature of evil or being or what have you, but they are also in some meaningful way out there in the Umbra, and then Astral Voyager with a few dots of the appropriate esoterica could reach them. They may be ream, uh, realms entirely made out of the belief that they exist. They are connected to each other, but each is borderless in so much as they do not have like clearly defined walls and there is a network of tunnels between them. The thing that I ki- that kind of got me is there isn't really a good reason given on why one would visit one of these places except for the purposes of a seeking. We don't get geography or location or the entities there and what they could bargain for. The controllers of the realm seem to be despotic and near total and a little bit of information on hey this is something a person would actually want to go to because if this is strictly material used for seekings this is a lot of material that can kind of only be used for one-on-one sessions which is fine to some extent. And we don't get the sense though, that the demons located in these clip in any way interact with say the astral or high umbral courts. The final section is entitled the black diamond and it ends on a question of kind of what is perfection? What is the cosmic Demi urge? And what is it to become a God? Is there a form of power beyond the Aswads? Have they touched something else? Will an Afondic God rise to consume all of false reality? And this, to me, fits uneasily in a book that also tries to talk so heavily about mundane evil and passing the baton between the two and also indicating that this book is not cartoonish and the Star Squid doesn't exist when both are kind of constantly presented is an uneasy tension that I don't feel the book really is able to balance. We get the idea of The Black Diamond, which is a perfect dark reflection of all things, which I kind of like as a metaphor. A lot of the stuff in this section I thought is quite useful, again, I would read brand it, the choice is mystifying to me. And now that I've repeated that statement three times, Adam, what did you think about chapter
0: four? Let's see, on page 94, I think it's weird to read a sidebar telling me material in an RPG book is fictional. I mean, whenever I read an RPG book, I just assume it's true. I mean, I've, I've been setting black spiral dancer traps in my backyard every night since the early 90s. I mean, <laughs> doesn't everyone? Come on. And you've but, yet um, to be t- attacked by a black spiral dancer, so it is clearly well, working. You know, they'll, they'll come along someday, but... Uh... <laughs> But, uh, okay, talking about night side in this chapter, there is a long section talking about uh, psychology and psychology terms. This was, I'm afraid, just not interesting for me. I can't tell the difference between Jung's long shadow and the wilderness. They kind of sound like the same thing, even though they're supposed to be different things it states the wilderness is a physical place I'm having a hard time understanding where it might be perhaps they just want the storytellers to have the freedom to place it where they choose to this description of the underworld uh, states it is beyond uh, facing individual and societal taboos and immoralities uh, which you know there's a connotation there that the euthanatos would, Would know that and and that would be a part of their practice however past mage books never described this as part of the euthanatos visiting the underworld and so that kind of made it hard for me to really accept uh this information on the underworld as given Uh, the depths and the void uh, both look like the deep umbra how exactly is visiting them different from Regular mages going to the Deep Umbra. I, I don't fully understand that, uh, but perhaps some other mage fans can help me out with that one. Um, I, I just don't feel like the book made it properly clear to me. The clipoth descriptions give me ideas on using them for Nefandis seekings, but it is hard for me to use these these clipoths for anything else. Uh, like for example, if if the uh, you know the hero player characters are trailing a Nefandis and follow them into this place, well, of course. You know, the heroes are not going to do a seeking there at all. They're going to do something else. And in which case, uh, these descriptions don't give me a lot to work with. I would have to be uh, doing a lot uh, on my own as a storyteller. Page 99, Nifondi, uh, quote, Nifondi are who and what they are, not because they do malignant things, but because they've gone diving in the embodiment of the abyss and have been transformed on a soul deep level, end quote. This stands out as kind of an odd statement to me in light of the three chapters I read before this. Uh, it aligns with older editions explanation of nefandi, but this edition emphasizes choosing evil is what defines a Nifondist. So as Terry said, there are sections in this book that have sort of an uneasy tension where they kind of pass back and forth between two different ideas. This book links all Nafandi to Kabbalah at I would say, a fundamental level. I've spoken with a a Jewish mage fan um, online who thought that reflected poorly on Jewish culture. I can understand that view. I don't think the book expresses a negative view of Jewish culture or Kabbalah itself. The book states Jewish mystics and Nefandi noticed the same aspect of the universe long ago and developed beliefs around it. Where the book falls short is the unbelievably similar, almost identical beliefs of the Nafandi and Kabbalah. Uh, same names, same structure, etc. Not only that, but in trying to create a unifying setting, a set of beliefs for the quite varied sects of Nifandi, it appears to link them too closely to one real-world culture. Storytellers using this material will have to constantly remind themselves and their players that the Nifandi didn't actually split off from Jewish mystics centuries ago. I think, uh, as Terry said, the better solution is really this is the place to to create some new material that is fictional and not connected to a real world religion or culture last uh, information on the 10 Clipothic realms is very vague i guess they're a state of mind they're a realm they're a zone it gets pretty darn fuzzy for me i can understand how you want to keep it uh, mysterious but uh, a little more solid information for me thinking as a storyteller would have just been so welcome but uh, that wraps up my thoughts on chapter four The next chapter is
1: entitled Chapter 5 and All the Powers of Hell. This is the systems and stuff chapter. It starts with a bunch of Nephondic merits and flaws with an innocuous aura. It is not easily apparent that... The You have gone through the calls. Abyssal Mastery, you could just kind of exist in space, and you can use Spirit 5 to step sideways directly into the Clip Oath. Clipothic Radiance, you give off a notable stint of darkness. One of the more interesting ones that I would probably not have a player have, but I would certainly be fine encountering a character with it, would be Spectral Presence. You now kind of are stuck in the penumbra, and only through great exertion, Can you affect material reality? You don't need physical nutrition, even though you still have cravings for it. Interestingly, this is only a three-point flaw You're like, you're not entirely material. This is about as bad as really needing hearing aids. That's good to know. (laughs) Um, We get Abyssal Lunatic, which is a five-point flaw, which makes you completely unplayable. And then we get Witterslant or the Tate of Corruption, which is seven points. And this is kind of interesting, because there's two ways of presenting this. One is this would explain why Witterslaunt's characters may be more powerful, because they just get seven free points at character creation for having this. Or at the same time, it's, one of those things which will be an all-consuming role-playing challenge for a player. We already get Taint of Corruption as a flaw in Book of Secrets. We then get some information on investments where you can commit an atrocity for freebie points from being mean to selling your soul. Uh, they tend to have some sort of downside as well in that common way that agreements with demons do, and they don't really scale well because it's one of those things where you can get a point of power by being, by committing minor sins. And then at level eight, the hardcore sinner can destroy a city, a create a nation, become a warlord, or a career politician. And it's like okay. It just doesn't have this quite scaling uh, feature to it. It then suggests what you can get through investments, that you can gain occult wisdom, superhuman abilities, powers of great charm, and how many points of investment they take. So the idea of trading atrocities for getting something is kind of interesting, although the scale doesn't quite seem to be on par. A painful sacrifice of a living person can more or less get you an extra dot, of an attribute, and that kind of is where I set the equivalence. There is then a bunch of examples given and these are interesting ideas but they don't give enough systems like object of affen- affection for seven points someone will just kind of love you it is a hollow reflection of love but it doesn't give an option for the target to resist we don't get any system to free someone of this and to me the nivana is someone being targeted by a nifondic investment is great plot fodder so some information on how to break it or how to interact with it to me is is something that's kind of necessary for instance one of them is prosecutorial immunity you will not be held within the criminal justice system so you're like oh okay there's no way to undo this do we just have to like kill the guy then like so the idea that someone who is immune from uh, mortal structures of formal power then needs to be taken out by an extrajudicial killing is is kind of weird to me we then get malevolent foci which are just foci used by nifondi and a lot of these are just kind of methods for instance alternative sciences is written as a focus but it discusses how these alternative sciences are venues for nifondic corruption through cults and through subverting science whether it be through like nutritional supplements or something like that that's not really a focus that's just kind of a a method, and that method to me would be more subversion, and it doesn't answer the question of how magic is actually brought into existence. That really needs to be kind of explained. Many of these things are more religious creeds than foci, and then we get a bunch of those those paradigms and you get things like cosmic horror is the only truth everyone is against me so whatever i do is justified uh, these aren't really paradigms these are just kind of kind of world views, and they don't necessarily explain where the magic done come from humans are terrible suggests that we are fallen and we can call on our gaian origins to change the world but that doesn't really feel Nefandic. it's kind of a neat idea though it does kind of give an idea of why Nefandi may be powerful their willingness to go further than everyone else and to use atrocity suggests that other people are being held back and that forms a limitation to their magic. Again, at no point do we really get uh, systematic support for that with the exception of those demonic investments. We get malignant magics, which is rotes and such. These are r- remarkably lengthy write-ups for things that already exist for instance we get the art of seduction which gives us a lengthy system on how to change someone's mind this also across the section indicates that with mind two you can get someone to do something they will do anyway at mind 3, you can get them to do something that they are indifferent towards. At mind 4, you can kind of force them to do anything. And at mind 5, you can just rewrite who they are as a person. Some of the systems are inconsistent with previous books. Like, for instance, that you're using the target's willpower as difficulty instead of it being a resisted roll against their willpower. We get a rote for causing a plague, which seems way more effective than summoning a storm. If you want to destroy an area, this is arguably one of the most effective ways to cause widespread destruction. We get a rote on summoning egregors, which are thought entities that will do what you ask them to do. Frequently, these rotes will say it takes these spheres and maybe these three other spheres, and no indication is given as to why those other spheres are necessarily required. I'm quite simply not sure how to use a lot of the things in this section. They are extensions of existing rotes that we have in some cases and in other cases they bring into existence novel systems that kind of contradict what we've gotten before. The next section is on uh, the stuff of the Nefandi, and we get a a bunch of grimoires here. We get a Sumerian tome of atrocities. We get some sort of dark urban fantasy book series that is just kind of torture porn. We get a false copy of The Precepts of Damien which were proposed Reportedly, the reason why we had purges of the other groups in the late 90s, indicating that that is the Nefandis' fault. There's a book purporting to contain the six seals of Solomon that contain information on six demons, and pages themselves are blown by the wind as you read through. And I'm like, ooh, a menacing book. We get a lot of sleeper books that are in no way magical. I would like a little more advice on how to use that. Like, the secret power of the Nefandi is also revealed in this section in that we get nephondic weapons malign cutlery is a fascinating two dot plus set of wonders and nephondic scythes do strength plus nine lethal damage i think we know why they're winning the ascension war mage has very rarely been a game of big swords except for that brief period of time in lore of the traditions where they're like you know what's cool? The traditions. You know what's cool? Swords. You know what each tradition needs? A big ass sword. And I'm like, you know what? I'm here for it. And now we have the Nafandi counter swords, and they're they're effing huge. Like the the Titanic sword is roll against difficulty five, and it does strength plus eight lethal damage. Like that can clearly cleft someone. In Twain, and then sometimes it's like sometimes you have to have at least strength too. You're like, oh, that's good. The limiting factor on using this is it can only be used by nearly everyone. Um, that's 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 good. Um, but yeah, these swords we get a lash that wears away people's willpower a portable gate to hell the portable gate to hell seemingly requires more dots of getting to hell than some of the other things but but it acts as kind of a get out of jail free card and that brings us to the end of the section and some of these are neat often they are either mundane technological devices or things that you could kind of create up a little system for they're fine i could certainly see a afandi using them though adam what did you think about the the magic of chapter five
0: well, let's see. On chapter 5, uh, page 116, it tells us that detailed player-facing info on Nifondi makes them more fearsome. And I was wondering, well, how does that work exactly? I'm not, not clear on that one. Page 117, there's a merit called innocuous aura, and this is a really big deal. Any Nifondis who, uh, NPC or... or god forbid player character takes this merit then their aura always looks good on every scan that, that other mages do on them which means they can infiltrate any mage you know non Nefondi mage group really easily and so as a storyteller <laughs> Uh, every storyteller has to make the decision: are, are they going to allow this merit in their game, and how how um, prevalent is it? Because this could change everything, basically. So uh, storytellers be aware of that one. The infernal investments uh, we've we've seen these in previous editions of Mage. Uh, here they focus more on social and institutional power more than physical power. So uh, I think the authors uh, wanted to make it clear that that uh, they don't want uh, you know fireball tossing and and Um, back alley brawls, they they want these infernal investments to be used more for manipulating regular sleeper institutions or getting uh, really, you know, terrifying uh, social advantages with other people that can lead to, uh, to terrible things later. Many of the paradigms are very, very similar to ones we've seen in previous Mage 20 books, so that was a little disappointing for me. There are a number of practices that really are just duplicates of practices we've seen before only these are evil and it's like well okay yeah i mean i could have made that distinction as a storyteller myself so it's not it's just not very helpful it makes it clear that there are no clipothic spheres of magic in the mage 20 edition uh, for me that's interesting because uh, the first two editions of mage said nafandi no uh entropy which is like a, a different kind of entropy sphere and non nafandi don't know it and then revised edition said every sphere of magic has an, a, a klopathic uh, opposite which um i think is a little too much to handle Mage twenty says there are no clipothic spheres. Um, Nifondi use the same kind of magic, same kind of game rules as uh, other mages, which I think is is acceptable. I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think uh, clipothic entropy is pretty darn cool, but um, you know that not everybody thinks that. Okay, there is a uh, wrote in here shroud the soul, which again is a way for Nifondi to. Uh, hide their aura from scans from other mages, so once again they can infiltrate a non nifondi group and, and cause havoc. Looking over the rules for this, it, it seems pretty darn easy. I, I think that would be used as the justification for the suggestions in the Mage 20 core book that the Nifondi are infiltrating large groups and doing it very successfully, and this can lead to dramatic plots. But if that's not where you're going with your chronicle, then this road, I think, is a little too easy to pull off. And also, can can non Nefandi do this, or only the Nefandi know this? I, I think that's worth discussing. There is a rote, every man against his brothers, where a Nifondist can manipulate a crowd to, you know, do something uh, terrible to an opponent of the Nifondis. The low difficulties assume a very negative view of, of humanity here, so as, as a storyteller, as a mage fan, I, I might adjust the difficulty there. It seems... Um, suspiciously easy. There is a rote called Grasping Terrors, which is hands come out of nowhere and just grab the uh, the, the subject of the rote. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is that would just be really scary and, and really cool. This is like Nafandi level stuff for me. That That's pretty uncool. As a as a storyteller, I don't want anybody doing that to me in real yeah, life. Yeah, But uh, overall, the rotes in Chapter 5 are, they're more practical and they're less inspiring or, or interesting. It, it, I guess there was a very, uh, there was a real emphasis on let's give practice abilities that explain how the Nefandi can cause so much harm in the world of darkness. So they make sense, but not all of them are all that exciting or or interesting on their own uh in the devices terry covered a lot of those there was one that stood out to me there's something called the fido collar which is a um sort of a talisman it, it's like a, a decorative necklace that traditionally they call it a, ch- a choker it, it doesn't like hang down from your neck it like uh, adheres more closely to your neck this is a de- uh, device so that uh, Nif- uh can uh, control uh, slaves and you know force them to do things and, and they can't escape and, and all this kind of thing i guess that makes sense in the world of darkness it, it it was a little too on the nose for me and the authors seem to agree because at the end of the write-up they have a justification it's like no no this, this is taken from real life so it makes sense so it's like we know that you think this looks like it's it's too much but um it, it's real so you should have it in your game it's, and you know my thinking is a storyteller i'm running a fictional role-playing game for my friends if something looks too ridiculous or looks like too much then yeah don't put it in the game i'm not going to Tell my players, hey, you know this looks ridiculous, but you're just supposed to accept it. It's like, I don't take that stance. And that wraps up chapter five for me. The next section is chapter six,
1: entitled Your Friends and Neighbors. And this goes through people. We get a bunch of examples of organizations and then kind of members of that organization. A Better Sandal is a company that is seemingly about being paid to do shit posting, where you just kind of attack a celebrity or malign another business or just post nonsensical things on the internet. And we don't really get an explanation of the business model, to my mind. Like... I was waiting to see them land that and being like, oh, they're hired to do intel by other companies or they, they harness the quintessence generated by people shitposting and then they sell that on to something else or something like that. I'm like, oh, man, this is going to be really – oh, wait, it's over.
0: Yeah, I was I was actually blown away by the fact that I, I have written in my notes, I don't understand the business model of Better Sandal. And Terry, like, spelled it out. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I- exactly. I can – sort of understand how someone would pay someone else, but it's like, this is supposed to be a public facing company Mm -hmm. like with the website and brochures and stuff. It's like, how do you advertise that? And then don't get in a whole lot of trouble a couple of months down the road when, you know, something blows over. It's like, I I just can't see the pieces fitting together. But but go on, Terry. Yeah, I could
1: see them being a PR firm that has this other branch that, that it's secretly two companies that are related to each other that the public doesn't know about. I do like the idea that the founders are dead and the CEO is fake and it's just kind of this front and that was kind of neat. We get a set of clothing lines that are trying to change the world through Thoughtspace and their designers. I did like the idea, though, that I thought this was initially kind of lame, but I like the idea of one of the things the Syndicate does is they take the trappings of the traditions and make them look stupid in the mortal mind. This is doing the opposite it is taking the trappings in the Nefandi and making them look cool but at the same time you could tell that the author has a certain amount of contempt for it so the author is like these people are idiots for making this look cool even though it works because sleepers are idiots you're not an idiot right reader and you're like wait where are we going with this am i being <laughs> am i being recruited into the non-semi anti which i guess is a good thing i'm not entirely sure but i also like the fact that adam and mine response to a better sandra was like well what's your business model like this like <laughs> dad I'm going out back with a saw wait why how does this work (laughs) like don't worry I'll be safe no no no. there's still a basic question that is yet to be answered here and I would like an answer for it before I say it's okay so again the dad cast comes through we get a decadent club in the form of club maelstrom which is this moving thing where people die with a fraternal order the shield which is a group of law and order quote-unquote um, officers who emphasize a very brutal form of order we get a new age press which is title, uh, which is publishing uh, malignant twaddle and then we get a section entitled earthly servitors and maligned entities we get an imp which can be summoned online we get the return of the Ramas Ka, we get a fungus that feeds on bad feelings we get a list of goetic entities that you can summon immense mimen- entities that you can invoke. We get the Basilisk, which has a whole section with 20 health levels, no soak, and a Gnosis of 3. They're supposed to be a mid-level and all-knowing god, and they have an intelligence of 3. We get a bunch of Paradox Spirits, and one of the weird things here about the Paradox Spirits is frequently they are given health levels, which we don't always get. So again, it appears to be the best way of dealing with wrinkle is with a shotgun. And that to me does not feel very mage-like. We then get fallen mages who are nefandic characters. We get the voice, which simply menaces you and may be a manifest avatar. We get Jane Doherty, who is a cannibal human trafficker who eats people by running a small greasy spoon diner. It's kind of an interesting over-the-top character, which I could certainly see, especially if you have a lot of other more, uh, staid or subdued Nephondi. Just having one where you're like, Oh no, okay, literal cannibal. This this is much, much easier to do. This chapter had a, a bunch of things that you can kind of uh, pick through. The goetic entities were kind of neat. The illustrations, it's useful to know what these things kind of look like. The companies are all things that you could drop in a game. I, I probably would have liked a little more on the people running the operation, so that way I could really drop it in wholesale, which is kind of neat. We don't get write-ups for a lot of the secondary characters, like the shock artiste and the closet sadist, but I, I, I see that I don't need necessarily... A, a full write-up of those things. I was kind of hoping for more top-level stuff. Like, one of the interesting things to me about the Nefandi is they regularly truck with very potent spirits, or at least that is what is purported. The game kind of de-emphasizes that, but one or two kind of would have been nice. The introduction of the Goetic entities as creatures that you could look to for wisdom and understanding, I think is, uh, is perfectly fine, and I think that's, I'm glad that that is included. Adam, what did you think about chapter
0: six? A lot of things here. Um, Towards the beginning, the club maelstrom, I thought it had very interesting possibilities. There's one nightclub or dance club, I guess you could say, that Opens its doors magically at uh, defunct uh, nightclubs in different cities across uh, apparently North America or, or, or the Western world. So you can walk in in Seattle and then you know you f- your your players you know fight some opposition and then they they break out and they're in New York City. It's like what just happened. So I, I think that that can be interesting. The section towards the beginning of the chapter: cults, Clicks, and corporations. Each one ends with a full write-up on a typical member or a typical person that they would employ and um, that information just wasn't interesting for me it was it was so typical it's like yeah as a storyteller i, I kind of had this in my head already so that was not a good use of space in the book uh, for me breaking out into the uh, strange entities the Ramos Ka, uh, had they been mentioned before but i just think they're cool they're they're big they're strange they're they're scary it's like some sort of a blob that dissolves people, and sometimes it even dissolves its own allies, and so it's like one of those crazy dangerous things. It makes you wonder, you know, are the Nefandi calling up things they can't control, which is one of the themes that, that comes in when you're talking about Nefandi. so I, it works for me. I don't really know anything about real-world occult, but I sort of grew up hearing now and then about uh, Goetic Demons, and it's like, okay, you, these are really bad, leave them alone. So I did. But uh, here in this book, I just think it's odd that there are two Goetic Demons who are actually nice guys. You you know, once you, you can call them up and chat with them, and it's no big deal. Uh, Boer and Stolas, and so I, I was kind of wondering if that was thematically appropriate. It's like you know, you hear about these these horrible goetic demons, and some of them really are in here, and then there are two that are just oh, you know, they don't look scary. They're they're kind of weird guys. They show up and tell you some nice things, and they go home without causing any trouble. So it's like I, I don't know if that really fits for me, but um, also Baphomet. When you read the description of Baphomet, he actually kind of sounds harmless. Yet he's associated with the Nefandi sect that is not at all uh, harmless, and so it's like, uh, yeah, I I don't think they quite struck the landing with the Baphomet right up. I I think they should have made him sound menacing because the people who are connected with him are very menacing. So that that was just odd. Uh, there's one called Zagla, which uh, I thought was was actually just really cool. I mean, it was firing on all pistons for me. It's a sort of uh, strange, otherworldly entity that. Um, seems to have some kind of a liking for the digital web and computer networks and everything. And what it does is it takes uh, images and it does a sort of digital warping of them to like turn them into something crazy. Like it would take a cartoon cat image and then like slowly warp it in front of your eyes into some fearsome, horrifying kind of a creature and then let it loose. And that's how Zagla always uh, manifests. And so I I don't know, it, it kind of works for me. I, I thought it was interesting. As a storyteller, I might like to, to play with that, visit that on my um Players. Let's see, the Nefandi have their own paradox spirits. There's one called Safin, which um, made a little less deadly. I think it would be a very interesting paradox spirit to use on uh, choristers and Bettini. If I remember this correctly, it's it's like this blinding light that uh, is so bright and so you know holy and pure that it, it damages people who are exposed to it because people are you know sinful uh non-perfect individuals and it's like if you if you just ratchet that down a little bit i i think that would be a very interesting paradox spirit to use on choristers and Bettini because they're trying to be good and so this good thing shows up and harms them it's like whoa am i not being good enough and I, I think a storyteller could could take that in interesting directions uh also elon musk is named garrick brown in the world of darkness and so that was I don't know, kind of odd. Uh, as we're recording this, Elon Musk is in the headlines a lot. A lot of people are saying good and bad things about him, so it's just kind of interesting to be reading a World of Darkness book. It's like, oh, he's, he's Garrick Brown here. And, okay, um, that's that's a choice. So <laughs> that's chapter six for me. Chapter 7
1: is entitled Theater of Cruelty, and this is the, the Storyteller chapter. One of the sections is entitled Playing with Nafandi and Surviving. It goes over using emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, religious abuse, and financial abuse in a game, and kind of how to do that, and to ask your players how to navigate those things, and some advice, kind of if your players are too cool with it. We then get a literal Nefandi's player's guide, the one thing they said they wouldn't give us. Yeah. So, uh, then we get Metaplot options um and this goes over uh, not quite so so much meta plot so much as kind of options and some of these are interesting, that the, the fallen are a contentious bunch of throwbacks that are kind of falling to infighting. We could have that they infiltrated the technocracy and that caused the atrocities of the 20th century, could have infiltrated the traditions. And it explains the fighting at dewizetep and a kind of constant low-level background war. They may have formed the traditions as kind of a metaphysical suicide cult that they saw the rise of the uh technocracy and they wanted to kill off some of their opposition so they organized them into the tradition so that they could more effectively throw themselves against the the gears of war another option is that both the traditions and the technocracy are corrupt and it's up to the disparates we could have the basilisk rise maybe cthulhu returns again these are not really meta plots so much as background for the story which again is fine it's just a uh, kind of a terminology thing get a brief aside on can the nifondi be redeemed i would have liked more information on how this could happen. I do think it is an interesting avenue for player versus avatar, and it really kind of shows us that the avatar is separate, seemingly, from the person. And if not, a little bit more information on how to run with that would have been nice. We then get an afterword where the author says, I wish I could say this Book of the Fallen is an exaggeration. It's not every element within the preceding book, save the art- outright supernatural aspects has been drawn from real life. Uh, Slavery, terrorism, fashionable sociopathy, state-sponsored torture, corporate abuses, sexual exploitation, all of it is absolutely true. In terms of sheer human foulness, this world of darkness is our own. And to me, this is less a commentary on the world of darkness than on our actual world, I don't think the author understands necessarily what the word exaggeration means. In M20, the line between the author and the voice of the game is often quite thin in places. And for a book like this, to try and square those two together is quite difficult. If this is the world of darkness as purported, I don't know if this is a problem with our reality or the world of darkness is so dark, it's simply a place I don't want to play anymore. And this is beyond the sections where we have that in-character omniscient voice saying, oh, everything sucks all the time, so you better be one of the bad guys so you can win it. One thing once forever. And that brings us to the end, so I guess I'll reserve my proper comments. But uh, what did you think about theater of cruelty? And I guess the afterword.
0: Well, let's see. Um, There was an interesting quote on page 205 Uh, The further we move into the 21st century, the more absurd the old magic versus science conflict of mages' early days becomes. And that's not written into the foundation of the game. Yet, if you look at some of the first and second edition supplements, that it, there is some of that in there. So, there is some truth to that, but not as much as first appears from, from reading this quote. Page 219, there won't be a moment to draw a quiet breath once this metaplot kicks in, end quote. Okay, hold, hold the phone. That's plot, not metaplot. So, when you take any metaplot and you apply it to your game and run your game... Your game is an example of metaplot, not plot so that was that was a little, little odd but a minor nitpick maybe I'm being too too uh, fussy there there's metaplot options at the end of chapter seven and the only one that seems new uh, from age 20 is the hungry God which is basically how to take uh, the basilisk um, and uh, that is presented in this book and, and a metaplot option based on that which which is fairly interesting but again it's it's the only new one among a list of metaplot options like reading through them it's like yeah mage 20 covered that one and that one and that one so that was a a bit disappointing for me uh the authors afterward there's a call to activism you know the world's a terrible place you've got to get up and make it better it's like well i i guess on a certain level i can agree but again really this is a rpg book so i i'd rather it focus on the game that i want to run for my players when you know with, with dice and and uh, paper and pencil and all that. So I I really like it when games have a a better focus on what they are there for. And uh, going into general thoughts on the book, uh, Terry, I'd like to hear what you think about the book as a whole. I would have liked
1: some information on dialing the type and level of evil in the world, because if you take everything here all at once as presented, uh, it is a... Remarkably evil world that is overrun by Nefandi, and have a game that is focused on literally anything else seems like it would be missing the point. It uses werewolf terminology a lot, and so does M20 as a whole. Uh, between that and the introduction of actually having souls as things, I, I really think this makes the world less interesting in the same way that I don't want Jewish mysticism to be the canonical truth of the cosmos that all the bad people use. I don't want the werewolf view of the weaver wild and worm running around with Fomori being a a, a major nemesis in the game. Um, The attempts at literary flourishes, to me, actively impede the message. The voice that is used for some of the early chapters, which is then later dropped, I think makes it confusing. I think there was a fundamental organizational issue in a lot of cases where Adam and I talked about how we thought the paradigms weren't really paradigms. They were either rehashings or they were just kind of worldviews, and to me... That's fine, just call it that. Have a worldview section and be like, hey, here are some things that can happen to characters that cause them to turn nefandi It conflates the abuse done by those for pleasure with that which is done out of lack of care with that which is done out of negligence. I would argue that the largest cause of harm to people is not others being actively malignant so much as setting up systems where harm to others is rewarded. Uh, It is far easier to, let's say, accidentally, I say with some air quotes, to create crappy environmental regulation that can cause harm to literally millions than it is to create a child trafficking ring for personal gain. I think the former is much closer to what we will encounter in the real world and its ability to to scale and cause misery, is not to be trifled with. And that kind of institutional evil is quite simply ignored. Evil in this book occurs because there is a malignant actor who actively wants to harm other people or chooses actively not to care. And to conflate those two, I think, is foolish. There is a critical level at which harm done by large institutions and systems of power is indeed cruelty and evil but i think that is way harder to notice and having a conversation around that to me is much more interesting and that's how you can have the technocracy be so destructive in the pursuit of order sometimes we get page references to previous books other times we don't towards the end of the book we get flat out spelling errors these are words that are just spelled wrong that in word would have a red squiggly line underneath them we get formatting inconsistencies it just kind of falls off at the end and then we have the fundamental tension inside of the book between comic book evil a very mundane kind of evil a kind of supernatural evil and the any other manifold forms i would have much preferred saying there is a variety of types of evil and the Nefandi move between all of them rather than saying they aren't this and we talked about the tension between the cult of the scar star squid purportedly being got being gone and then us getting information about the cult of the star squid which i would have liked more information on i I like that stuff. I find it interesting. One of the things about mage is along with werewolf is the literal can become figurative and the figurative can become uh, literal. And if you want a massive embodiment of evil out in the cosmos, mage is a game where that can happen. Are you going to be able to attack it with a, uh, with a starship or something and, and, and bring light and truth to the cosmos? Probably not. But if you wanted to, Picked it, it is there. There is some genuinely good stuff in this book. It is creative and it is interesting. The information on abuse and such, I think it would have been more useful to have that tie directly into what the Nafandi use and to kind of give a, a few trails of how that happened, which is interesting because previous books in the Nafandi, the revised book of The Fallen, do go through that. The art in many cases is somewhat unsettling. So uh, mission accomplished there. And that is kind of my thought on this somewhat complicated book. Uh, Adam, what did you think?
0: Um, let's see. The new idea in this book that Nifondi want to become gods is good and fits with the idea in later editions of Mages that some mages seek to become god forms. What I don't agree with is the notion that this makes them more frightening than mages who serve evil gods. Evil gods could be eons old with greater power than a mage who became a god 200 years ago can muster. Uh, I don't see either option as being more menacing uh, than the other. The interesting hook for your own stories is the notion that Nafandi have long been better at producing god forms than other factions. Now mages have another reason to seek out Nafandi and risk Coming under their influence. Uh, twice, this book mentions Sun Wukong, uh, the Monkey King from *Journey to the West*. It's it's an older uh, Chinese uh, work of fiction. Uh, it, it says that Sun Wukong is is an incarnation of evil that nafandi like like seriously follow. And uh, this doesn't work for me on, on two levels. First, it's like Telling someone that Donald Duck is a demon from hell? Uh, Second, it misses the point of the character. The Monkey King is a representation in fiction of the common man's desire to thumb his nose at authority and get away with it occasionally. And that's that's all. It's really nothing darker. The Monkey King goes nuts early in the story but doesn't do any permanent damage. He soon becomes a supporter of religious and social order who occasionally pranks someone. And that's it so this is just such a wild misinterpretation of this character that it's it just you know as someone who knows a little bit about chinese culture i was reading through it going no like i can't roll with this the many references to how do you do that makes it clear that book is necessary I, I don't think of it as a supplement it's it's necessary for running mage 20. um there was a a faction or group of Nifandi called the gatekeepers mentioned in the mage 20 core book and it's they seem to be a, a happening powerful group in in Nifondi circles They weren't really mentioned in here. I thought that was a weird omission. Um, I really like uh, the idea of the outsiders from the early days of Mage. They serve unknowable beings in the deep umbra. For me, initial assumptions are important. If you start with the assumption that outer beings aren't real, then yeah, they look really darn silly. But if they are real in your setting, then it makes sense they would look for awakened agents on Earth. And again, as Terry said it states clearly a few times in this book that, yeah, we're, we're not doing that, uh, that that's even pretty dopey, but then in other places, like, no, no, this is this is happening, and so it's like, yeah, I, I don't know really how this book uh, wants to make a uh, stance on that, but um, uh, for me, as a storyteller dealing with Nafundi I think it's helpful to pick one guiding theme for what, defines the Nifondi? Is it really evil mages? Is it mages who have gone through the calls? Is it mages who serve evil beings? Is it mages who are trained by a specific faction or society and are influenced by them? Uh, that helps me so much as a storyteller to guide what are Nefandi really about? Is it just someone who went through a call and now they're different and, and that that's what's going on with them, or, or or something else. That's what helps me to make sense of the different depictions of Nafandi over four different editions of Mage, because someone just coming in and looking through Mage books, it's like, well, what are the Nifondi? It's like, how do I put these conflicting views of them together? It's like, well, you pick the one guiding theme for what is a Nafandi and you take it from there. Things should fall into place for you as a storyteller. There's no mention of Nafandi who believe all of their philosophies are put on and uh, a fake, and only believe in pursuing selfish goals. I, it it seems like that should have at least been mentioned, like Nefandi, who who come in, they go through the call, they become Nifond, uh, a Nifondist and work with others, but the whole time they're believing, yeah, you don't believe it, I don't believe it, it it's all a put-on, it's all a fake, I'm just going to serve my own goals and pretend that I believe this stuff when I really don't. And it, it wasn't really there. This book focuses on abusers as a template for what the Nefandi are all about that works Of course, but I think there are other templates that can define uh, Nefondis villains in in your game, so I don't think Abuser is the only one to use. There is a focus on real-world events and headlines in this game. Obviously, the the two authors were were very concerned about a lot of bad things happening in the real world. I I guess I can understand that, but I wonder how much that's supposed to color a a role-playing book that you're putting out for other people to use at their tables. Uh, this book repeatedly states it is not in Fondi Player's Guide, and the author is against such things, but as Terry pointed out very ably, it is a Nafondi Player's Guide. Not only that, but it's a detailed and complete one. And so, uh... You know, as as a mage fan reading through that, you're going to have to figure out what you think about that. I mean, are you going to allow Nifandi player characters? You have everything you need in this book to do it. I I don't do that. I I don't want uh, Marauder or Nefandii player characters, and so those sections of this book aren't helpful to me. You know, if I, if I'm going to run Mage Twenty, there's there's big sections of this book I'm just going to ignore because I don't have Nifondi player characters. So, you know, when discussing this book, I I I can't avoid that topic. But uh, that pretty much wraps it up for me. Is there uh, an interesting quote for the book that, that stood out to you, Terry?
1: Yes. The book is, is big and had its interesting collection of lines. One of my favorites was, the explosion may be emotional, social, financial, physical even, in the case of religious and metaphysical communities, spiritual. I'm going to say that without context. And I think it is better than that. Better for it. The other one was a material creature gated in from somewhere else in the physical world. Demands between two and twenty successes. Thanks, book. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that
0: stands out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what are we reading next, Adam? <laughs> uh, next up, it is uh, Technocracy Reloaded. And there is so much uh, technocracy information in Mage 20 already that uh, th- this book is going to need to justify itself to me. So I, I, of course, haven't read it yet. So that that's going to be uh, interesting to get into uh, for next time. But uh, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. If you have something to say, please contact us at podcast at gmail.com with questions, comments, or feedback. You can subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. And hey, if you like the show and leave a review uh, for this show, then it makes us much more visible in other people's online searches, and we would certainly appreciate that. Uh, You can follow us on Twitter, at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at MageThePodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes and get the complete show notes that we prepare for you, uh, a lot of links that we're able to provide. And this show is very much um, appreciative to the executive producers. Uh, Terry, can you tell us more about that?
1: Yes, I'd like to say thank you to Oracle Buck Farmer, Oracle Christopher Phillips, Oracle Jay Widener, Oracle McHale, and Oracle The Crew of Erebus. Additionally, I'd also like to thank Alex Alexia, Anders S, Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Boo, Boogers, 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 Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B, Daniel Cuppen, Daniel Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsek, Gargan Lamar, George Laura, Guy Cohn and Stewart, Ea Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Biggs, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Josh H., Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proll, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aron, Nathan Weaver, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Puka G., Rachel Grace, Rolf Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Pat Brewster, Robart, The Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kennedy, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rolls. Thanks, everyone, for your support.
0: And if you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep producing episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby.
1: And until next time, if you consider staring into the void to achieve godhood, please do it on your own time. Bye.